and uh, um, got, he started a group, a non-profit organization called Voices of Rwanda, where he's taking uh, testimonies of uh, survivors of the genocide uh, in Rwanda and doing really important and impressive work. And uh, I think the, the, the project come out of the Fortuna, we connected to the Fortuna. Yeah, it was the inspiration of the project and advisors helping us in the process. I don't know, for those of you who don't know the Fortune of Archive here at Yale is one of the first uh, testimonial, video testimonial uh, project on Holocaust survivors, um, which is, I think, very important work over the years. So Taylor is really doing impressive work, and his uh, reputation precedes him where he goes. So I'm glad you're here, and he's here with Berta. So. Does Taylor have a last name? <laughs> Krauss. Taylor Krauss. And Taylor and Berta and I, just to start to introduce Berta, we all met in Geneva um, on a very auspicious uh, occasion. It was the, the Geneva, the Durban II Review uh, Conference in the United Nations. And um, it was uh, actually, we were speaking about how Berta saw Mr. Ahmadinejad, and uh, we all met uh, representatives of the, of the regime there. And uh, yeah, it was a very intense uh, week or so in Geneva. And what was really, I think, amazing and impressive, and I really think that something started in Geneva, um, that there was a group of people from Rwanda, from across the world, from Europe and Israel, young Jewish people, women groups, gay groups, uh, people fighting for democracy, and I think we all kind of, uh, people from Darfur, there was uh, people from the north of Africa, the Berber community was there, it was a sort of a, a loose affiliation of people coming together to fight uh, really a reactionary social movement as represented by Iran and others that were there. And uh, we all met and had very intense uh, meetings and uh, participated at, uh, on panels together and uh, protested together. So it was, uh, it was very, I think, a very special time that groups are now in contact with each other. I think something positive and progressive has started. Why do you think Iran was there? Why were they there? Well, Ahmadinejad was the only... Uh, why was he there? It was actually Yama Shawa that we met. I mean, he wasn't trying to be get enlightened, I'm sure. No, he was there to spread his message of hate, which uh, he does very effectively. And I, I, I won't get into it, but um, when he addressed... I don't want to get too much of it, but when he addressed the General Assembly, he was the only leader of the of any nation to come to address the meeting, and he actually spoke in the narrative of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And I, I would argue that this is something that's even more of a long-term threat than uh, Iran's nuclear weapons program, that he's really unleashed into the world the, he's resuscitated the narrative of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and this is literally being spread rapidly through much of the Middle East and through parts of South America and parts of Africa and even in North America. And this is something that we really need to start to, to map and to understand what's going on. And it's an area of research that has not not been done, literally. So um, on that note, so Berta Kaigitsi, I'm sorry for mispronouncing your name. Um, so Berta is going to speak today on a world of contradictions, anti-Semitism, uh, Anti-Tutsism and Never Again. Uh, Berta is now based at the University of Ottawa where she's doing a PhD. She's also teaching French classes at uh, St. Anne University and she's been doing this since 2007. 
She's also an ambassador for, to the Friends of Tebeho, which is a, to support the reconstruction and the resilience of young survivors of the genocide in Rwanda, um, and when, particularly those who have been orphaned uh, by, by the genocide. Her research focuses on, on issues of resilience of the survivors of the genocide committed against the Tutsis of Rwanda, on issues of racism, anti-Semitism, and genocide denial, which you'll hear is also a movement that's uh, relevant to the Rwandan context. She was born in Jiseni, which is a western province in Rwanda. Um, I won't go into details, but she was personally impacted by the genocide. Uh, she left Rwanda, and in 2000, uh, sorry, in uh, sorry, in 1999 to 2000, she did a BA in education at the Adventist University in Central Africa. She then went on to do a master's degree in education at the University of Trois-Rivières in Quebec, in uh, in Canada. She's written widely. She has an acclaimed autobiography entitled "Demain Ma Vie: Enfant Chef de Famille dans la Rwanda Après." And she's written other books as well. Uh, so she's really an accomplished uh, scholar and human rights activist. And um, it's really an honor and a privilege that you're here. So. Uh, thank you, Professor Snor. And thank you, everyone, for being here and uh, sharing what uh, I have to, to share with you. I'm sorry with my English, sometimes the words not come easily, <laughs> but I think it will be fine. Um, the subject of today uh, is was not really um, among my interests. I was affected by them, but I was working on a resilience of children household uh, in Rwanda before I went uh, in Geneva. And while in Geneva, I was emotionally impacted by what uh, I hear there. Among what I hear, uh, I am a diligent speech. And also someone from Rwanda who was uh, denying uh, genocide against Tutsi by presenting herself as uh, a genocide survivor. So this evening, uh, I would love to share with you why have I, as a, Rwand as a Rwandan, as someone, someone from Africa, far from Middle East, far from West, if I can say, um, why am, am I have to, to be worried by Ahmadinejad speech? Uh, Kotler was here maybe uh, in the first session and uh, he addressed a, a phrase, a sentence, um, which inspired me on what I'm going to say today. Uh, he told that why it may begin by Jews, it doesn't end by Jews. And I know what really that means uh, as I am coming from Rwanda. Uh, during the, the Durban Review Conference, uh, I was just in front of Ahmed Najad uh, while he was giving his speech. I get inside by curiosity as what really he's going to say. I put my microphone and uh, 
I heard, I heard. At one moment, he said that uh, Jews are using their suffering uh, to colonize, to make a genocide uh, in Middle East to Palestinian uh, people. I was before emerged in reading testimonies from survivors of Holocaust. I, I have read, I had read primarily the uh, testimonies. I had read uh, uh, Roberta Tarme one. I had read uh, uh, Charlotte de one. And at that time, I was published mine from Rwanda. And when I heard, when I hear him saying that that suffering was a pretended suffering, I feel even if I am not a Jew, I, I feel like it, he was addressing that speech to me. He was saying what I was just wrote in my own book was not true. I was too much concerned. And from there, I being aware from what is really anti-Semitism. Even if I was immersed in a, uh, testimonies from survivors, I didn't know necessarily what, what was anti-Semitism. Uh, many testimonies are focused on period of perception, but not the whole process which uh, bring people to to the camp, the concentration camp. And at that at that time, uh, I had a chance to meet Charles, and to have this chance today to to read about it. So I began to read on anti-Semitism, and what I I read, I found that it was a very big. I didn't yet found. A, a term which can really help me to express uh, my emotion and what I felt during my reading about anti-Semitism. Or what I think you are more informed than I about this subject. But I, I realized that it is not a concern for Jew, Jewish community. It is for all of us. When we first did in during the review conference, it was a call for a rise of Israel. And as we know, nothing can happen one time in history. In Rwanda in 94, It was 15 years after Holocaust. So today, if we don't uh, react, if we don't get engaged, if what Ahmedinejad is saying comes true, what will happen to others? I don't think that, I, I'm not uh, saying that um, things are copying from which one context to another. But historically, 
there are many variations, but that variations does don't mean that things are not happening. Things happen differently, but are somehow called same thing. What I didn't like in the Ahmadinejad speech, uh, I, many things. I didn't like when he used word genocide by denying Holocaust. As we know, the word genocide came from Holocaust. How did someone can use that word by denying? I think if he has to use a word genocide, he has to found another term. I think by using the word genocide, he is agreeing that Shoah has happened, that Holocaust happened. And then what he is really saying is, is it happened, but we, we, we want it happen again. But I'm not, I'm not sure that he's denying it. His denier have, has, has many, many buff faith. I think, for me, he has to find another word if he wanted to deny what happened uh, to uh, Jews of Europe. And again, he cannot deny Holocaust without denying or other genocide. As I began, I felt uh, his, his speech was directed to me. And why? Why? Because of all what happened in the Second World War, give a reference to all happened before or after. As uh, one writer say, said somewhere, Showa is all the literature did around Showa gives all other genocide a way to be defined. So by denying the Showa, all genocide are denied in some way. That is why we have really to be uh, all worried. I'm gonna just read the, uh, the sentence of Watertown. The start of the 20th century was marked by the Armenian genocide in 1955, immediately followed by the World War I, then by the Shoah, and more recently by the long line of Cambodian, Rwandan, and Yugoslavian genocides, to name a few. However, the Shoah remains in this century the paradigm of social and psychological catastrophe. The experience occurred through the testimonies of survivors of Shoah allows us to understand other extreme experiences, whether they be posterior or anterior. The scale of the catastrophe and the scale of the studies dedicated to it and which continue to grow make up a fundamental corpus for the understanding of genocide phenomena which, for that matter, annoys some who periodically 
attempts to sit on the destruction of the Jews of Europe by the Nazis. So, as I said, Rwanda, Rwanda and other community who go through the genocide had to worry, but also other people. For now, genocide didn't repeat somewhere two times. So others who are not uh, included today could be also worried for the t for tomorrow, but specifically for the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda and the Shoah uh, had many things in common uh, from colonialism to the genocide. The word jail has been founded in Rwanda. Uh, literature from Nirohamitik myth, which is really a myth, but some people to take and took myth as a reality. Uh, Why did settlers, colonialists came in Rwanda? Did a big mistake. Uh, did a big mistake to by saying that. Uh, Tutsi were coming from somewhere else. I think from that point, they erased them to their homeland. And symbolically, they killed them, if I, if I can say that, that. Later, that meat from coming uh, at Hamitic descent, at uh, Semitic descent were used by killers, saying that we're gonna kill them and then put the body in the river of Nyabarongo and from Nyabarongo they will go back to Ethiopia where they are coming from. So for the first time I think anti-Semitism has a small uh, meeting with anti-Tutsism but I cannot say that it was anti-Semitism as uh, we had it in, uh, in the West. And it was uh, not anti-Semitism to Tutsi. Tutsi died as Tutsi, not as a Jew. But during that time of colonialism, what is circulating today by internet was circulating by people who are uh, discovering uh, other countries. And uh, I think why are the Jews and the Tutsi meet, but from a myth. So I think it, will, it is important to see if um, the perpetrators use really that myth or not. I know that they by persecuting Tutsi, they persecuted them as Tutsi, by, not by Jews. But at the time of, of killing, they told us, we're gonna put you in the river and you will go back to Ethiopia, where you are coming from. So that, I think research can be uh, done 
will never know as perpetrators has ruled their own throat, which we cannot discover easily. But studies can be, uh, I think it is necessary to go through studies and continue to discover what is really that mean. But today, many researchers uh, interested in Rwandan genocide are also a use uh, um, Shoah as a framework. But it is, I think also it is necessary to take it, to, to be careful not fusing a memory for genocide in another, but it also acknowledging which is common in the both experiences. And now I'm gonna talk about um, the second event during the Durban Review Conference, uh, where someone uh, presented herself as a, a victim of genocide against Tutsi in Rwanda, while his father he used to discriminate and exclude the children, Tutsi children in schools. It is a logic, a normal logic. Uh, after a genocide, I don't know what happened in the mind of victims, you know, perpetrators, but they wanted to be called victims. So in Geneva, we, we faced an event like that. He was invited to present a testimony as a survivor, but she was not. I found that it is very problematic because before the genocide, there is a discrimination. During the genocide, there is an elimination, and after the genocide, if the space of survivors are occupied by people from perpetrators, where is the, space, the place of a survivor? No one. It is like to erase her or him a, a second time. And as one person mentioned somewhere, testimony for survivors are some are helpful as they help the them to recognize to reconnect with life again by sharing those testimonies. So if they don't have space, what to do? That was another kind of denying which is really present uh, in in Rwanda but in uh, outside too. Uh, Survivor from Holocaust faced uh, that uh, the same thing, and I don't know how to to cope with that. But it is very very problematic. I think we we have to to, to think about it. We have to to see how uh, that space has not to be occupied by uh, people who are not really uh, survivors. Uh, but in Rwanda, I think there is another problem. Uh, killers and uh, survivors 
shared many shares the language, say shared the culture, culture, shares almost everything. And many children who had parents as perpetrators, it is very difficult to manage with their parents. And I think they are trying to found a refugee in the victim's community. It is a, another problem, but which is somehow we can understand it, but how to overcome it? Uh, I think we have just to, to think about it. Uh, I would like to add something about uh, the word never again. Uh, it, it was very difficult for me to work on it. I was thinking, well, uh, I am from Rwanda, I did what I can to, to let people know what happened there, but uh, probably tomorrow uh, we will say that Darfur was a genocide, and the, in the United Nations we, we hear Ahmed openly uh, giving a speech to the whole world and uh, calling for another genocide. And I was really confused what to say, what to say for really uh, uh, never again. We Yeah, it is still difficult for now to... I tried to write, I tried to, to find what others wrote, but it is still not um, enough uh, for me. Uh, there, there is a Senegalese writer who, says, who said that uh, a genocide is not a conceived event and something you, you cannot conceive, it is not easy to represent it to yourself. And I think Primo Levi also in one of his book said it. He said that before the Holocaust, um, message were there, message calling for the, the the genocide were there, but it was too big to believe it. So are we in the same way? Are we thinking that it is too big to react? So that, uh, I think it was uh, one of response. The other response of uh, what never again is not happening really, I think there is a, there is a psychological distance and there is also a rural distance between people. Uh, now in Canada, sometimes I talk with my friends, uh, and they they are they are sharing with me what they were they were doing in '94, or what uh, their parents were doing. They were in a normal life, as uh, our perpetrators in Rwanda were in also. 
somehow in a normal life. And they told me, you know, it was so far. Yes, we saw it on the TV, but it was so far. I can't blame them. It was really, the reality is that it was really far. But it, it is really far, even if we, now we meet. It is not far if we want to make it approach. I think it is what Taylor is doing in Rwanda by collecting those testimonies, by coming in the US and uh, sharing them with different students. I think he is just um, making, uh, uh, breaking that distance. I think it is what Charles is doing without uh, with inviting me and other people. I think it is possible to get together but we have to we have to, to have that desire. That desire is not for any all persons. So I think I'm gonna um, stop here and just uh, uh, hear questions. I, with questions, I'm more. <laughs> yes, good. So thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so to pick up on your theme, I remember after I spoke in Geneva that you and your colleagues invited me to speak and one of the questions that everybody was asking is why, given the history of uh, the Shoah and the Jewish people and, and given the experience in Rwanda of the Tutsis, that many people are asking me why the Jewish community is quiet, that there are many professors and there's many uh, business people and professional people and why are they quiet and people are saying don't you understand what's happening in Israel that the words the dehumanizing words that are so powerful of Ahmadinejad and others in Israel why aren't people reacting mm -hmm. and I would even go further by saying that the experience of people who are trying to bridge the gap mm -hmm. uh, on this issue of, uh, of incitement to genocide when it comes to Israel and uh, Zionists and Jews that there is, in the academy, I would even say there's an antagonism, that uh, people perceive us to be right-wing or not, or exaggerating or uh, not doing proper research or being politicians or, to, you know, defending Israel at all costs and uh, not being objective. In the Rwandan context, well, so why do you think that's happening? And was there something similar in the Rwandan context? When, were there people warning the society that this is going to be very bad and it's very dangerous and were people antagonistic to them? Mm -hmm. Is there something similar that happened or what, why do you think this is happening? What's the process? Why, why is there such a, I don't know if it's denial, but certainly a silence mm -hmm. in the face of this genocidal anti-Semitism? Mm -hmm. And was there a silence in Rwanda? Is there, is there, are there similarities? Mm -hmm. And if there are similarities, why do you think there is this silence? when something is so, at one level, so clear, when Ahmadinejad speaks, he mm -hmm. and his disciples, and then there have been the religious leaders, and the, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, they're clear, they're concise, they're consistent, they're straightforward, they're, they, they tell the world what they're going to do. Why this uh, silence? That is a very good question, and a difficult one, because Similar in Rwanda? Or? Yeah, in, in Rwanda, uh, there's something uh, closed. Uh, 
I do remember during the genocide, uh, there are many misinformation uh, in during the three months, uh, Tutsi were killed only because they burned Tutsi. And at the end, as the RPF, the opposition uh, military who were um, composed by few Tutsi, but Hutu too, uh, was uh, advancing many Hutu went out the country. They are uh, a big humanitarian cases. And then uh, the world, I think, forgotten very easily the three months. <coughs> and response, response the more on the crisis of, um, of refugees. Uh, and among those refugees in the Congo, there were many, many, many killers. Uh, I think uh, Bernard Henri Revy from France wrote a book about it by saying, during that crisis, we closed our eyes from the true, the, the true genocide. And I think media and um, humanitarian could really by helping, it's okay to help people who are refugees, but they do know that among all those refugees, they were uh, many killers. So later, all those killers, after the genocide were, was end up, um, the killers were in, in Congo, and after they were, uh, uh, there was uh, the war in Congo, and now the, the, this war are very criticized yeah, by um, many researchers, but I think they forgot. They forgot uh, um, the international um, responsibility, the, the, the international community, by helping all all those refugees who were Hutu would found a way also to distanciate killers and those who were not killers. But they didn't really do these jobs. So I think, I don't know what happened in the world, but they're a big conspiracy, I don't know if it's complicity with killers without really wanting it, but I think it is easy to go with the side of uh, perpetrators than the victims. And I don't know really ha what happened in the mind. It is a, a very difficult question, but uh, for for the genocide, they, they, there is a big silence than two other things. I so I was interested in what you said about psychological distance, um, and I'm interested to know what, what type of distance. I was thinking about this question uh, empirically. Do you mean, is it like that it's difficult to take the perspective of people that are geographically distant, or is it that we think Rwanda is a neglected place, nobody knows where it is, and so is this the distance, or is it, because like, if I think of the Jews, um, 
or anti-Semitic, everybody speaks of the Holocaust, so it's not, maybe it's not exactly the same. So what do you think, like what type of distance, uh, what did you feel? I mean, I don't know if you were here, if you were in Rwanda when it happened. Uh, I, I was in Rwanda. You were there, uh, yeah. Did you feel that nobody came? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what, maybe this is even more interesting. What was people, what were you thinking that is happening in the world? And were you expecting things to Well, you know, it is really difficult to expect something from people you don't know. And I was 15 years old. I didn't think about uh, uh, international community or people from everywhere, somewhere else. But just being uh, killed by our neighbors, it was too much. Uh, the distance, I, I, I am trying to think about it now, right now. Uh, and I think the psychological distance, when, uh, for example, we saw uh, something on TV, what, uh, how are we reacted? So if it emotionally it is too much, uh, do we close it and go to, go to a cinema? You know, something which yes. helps us to forget. Yeah, yeah. yeah. found a movie. Or do, do we let our emotion go and try to overcome those emotions? Uh, I think they, are, uh, they were a very distant, uh, psychological distance. But at the same time, for not the whole people, there are people who are doing a great work in Rwanda today, and I think it, it became from um, the no distance which happened in '94. Uh, I, I was receiving a, a few weeks ago someone at uh, at my home. Uh, he is doing a research about uh, about the survivors in Rwanda, and. Uh, he told me it is from um, the image I saw. I didn't know that I will do something with the emotion I had on that time, but I think this is my response for now. So, I yeah. And uh, as a child there or uh, adolescent, did you expect the world to help? I mean, because I, I mean, somebody came here and, and said that. It was in the media all the time. I mean, before it happened in Rwanda, I mean, there were many, many notes that this is about to happen. Mm -hmm. So were people trying to rebel or to do anything or to protest or to try to, you know, to connect people out of Rwanda? Or were they uh, more like victims that they were not happy? What, what happened there? How, what was um, the dynamic? Uh, you know, the dynamic is uh, it's difficult to, to describe. Uh, a, a genocide is not an accident. It is coming from a, long, a very long process, and the very long process of desmanization and uh, animalization of uh, the, the future victims. And uh, as I was saying, it is, uh, you, you are saying it coming, but you are not really believing in it. Uh, uh, many years before the genocide in Rwanda, as I was saying, um, Tutsi didn't have uh, full access at the school, only primary school. 
we did easily our primary school, but getting to the secondary school, they were a quota. Sometimes some tools used to buy to buy uh, uh, access for school those who had who had means, but other not necessary. Many many boys went to the seminar for becoming a priest because it was the way it was easy. Other went outside of Rwanda studying there in in remote countries where they were other uh, tools refugees refugees from. Uh, uh, the years of 1950. Uh, so all that is a preparation. How uh, do we manage to accept that we don't uh, have to go to school as others, even if we are we have good notes as others? That is a kind of dehumanization at a point. Um, also, when uh, a parent are asking to his boy, don't play with uh, that boy, he is a crocodile. That is a, an animalization. So when a genocide, th that preparation, I think it is both for the future victims and also for those who will, who will be perpetrators. And what it come, Somehow, for those who were in Rwanda, it was like, that is our day. Now we are going to to be killed. And it was very easy also for the perpetrators to go to the job. But I cannot say that they, they, were, not, they were not a resistance. I think they were a resistance, but who, who were more... Um, Yeah, who was more psychological than uh, uh, than physical? It was not easy as the, it was perpetrated by the government, and the government is very powerful. It is not easy to to react on it, but by trying to study, even if you you, you don't have uh, easy access, by just Keeping in life, keeping going in life, it was a kind of resistance, even if it doesn't help uh, during the genocide. I don't know if I understand. No, no, so well. yeah, I was just uh, going to add that um, it is strange. I mean, there has been outrage here uh, and around the world about Darfur, and yet with uh, everything, the most potent things we've been able to do were economic sanctions. Um, politics turned out to be more powerful than ethics or morality. Um, and it seems not to matter um, about world outrage if there is no political appetite and collaboration at the UN Security Council to go in and no country will go in alone, which is to me disgraceful. But I, I you know, it's the way it works. Um, 
I don't remember that kind of outrage with any other genocide. Um, perhaps because of Rwanda and people realizing that they did not really hear it, didn't really tune into it until it was too late. It's at this stage for the international general community to be so outraged about Darfur. I don't know, it's an interesting dilemma, but I, I certainly know with all of the people I know who have been working uh, around the Darfur issues, um, it is enormously frustrating. Do you want to speak about the role of the UN in the genocide of Rwanda? Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I think the UN was uh, the ears, you know. Um, not because they didn't know, they knew. Yeah. They knew and they let it happen. They were a call, many calls from uh, Romeo Darel, who, who was in Rwanda, and they prefer to to take the soldiers from Rwanda. While uh, during during the the big period of killings, they took out their soldiers and let us being killed. When I was invited in Geneva, I was thinking, really, I'm going to enter in that house, in that institution. I was very, very angry, and my friends told me, no, you know, you can't just react like that. You have to go. But uh, they knew before the genocide, they knew after. I, I think I have a good sentence here. Uh, which is um, uh, which is related to that uh, uh, refuse refusal to intervene, and uh, I think there's a kind of denial, there's a kind of complicity. Uh, it's a, a phrase from Ternon who is uh, in France and who is working of, uh, on genocide, and. Uh, he wrote, the, U the UN refused to intervene in January 94 to disarm soldiers and militia who declared the revolution to kill the Tutsis. The withdrawal of UNAMIL troops in April 1994, UN refused to order a vast peacekeeping operation in April and May. The refusers of the Security Council to identify the massacres as a genocide the declaration of heads of state and the high-ranking Western officials speaking about the genocide had just taken place in terms of double genocide. Comparing the exile of Hutus ordered by the Hutu power and the humanitarian disaster that it engendered to another genocide, these aversion, these cover-ups, these rise were only the facets of the same phenomenon of negation of international amnesia, according to the political interests. So there are some interests which are more important than genocide. Uh, I, I think there were also a sentence uh, that in Rwanda, 
they were they there was no petrol. So no no oil. No, no, no oil. oil. No oil. Oh. So as there is no oil, we don't need it to go there. It is just the people who are dying and so. Um, you may have seen that the president of France was in Rwanda the past couple days mm -hmm. and apologized for, he actually admitted to error. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly what he said, but um, he went um, willing to talk about this uh, on the basis of France had error. Um, what I wondered about is in those uh, let's see. You, you left Rwanda in 1999, did Charles say, or a little bit later? Sorry? When did you leave Rwanda? Uh, I leave Rwanda in 2004. Ah, okay. Well, let's take uh, a five-year period, mm -hmm. five years after mm -hmm. the genocide. Mm -hmm. uh, can you perhaps describe to us what uh, was happening, uh, both in terms of how individuals were sort of picking up the pieces of their lives mm -hmm. and what the government was trying to do mm -hmm. uh, in those five years? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can go beyond, but... <laughs> yeah, I can try. Um, the first thing, it, it, it is the disconnection. Um, I was in Rwanda before 94, and uh, uh, I go in the Congo. I went in the Congo for just uh, three months uh, during the genocide. Uh, after es escaping really by by miracle, sometimes I, I, oh, I, am, really, <laughs> I am really safe. Yes, uh, but I I went through the genocide. Uh, I saw people um, being killed. Uh, if I am here today. Uh, it is really by miracle. Uh, I have been at a cemetery for being kill, killed, but I escaped and uh, I went to Congo. I lost my uh, I uh, I lost my parents and many many uh, my family members as many uh, survivors. After coming back in Rwanda, I realized how the towards the before and the after passing by the through will never be the same. There were many children who became orphaned, orphans. There were many women who used to have children who were alone. There were some men who were alone, who used to have families. And there were many other Tutsi who used to live in our remote of countries who were coming back in Rwanda by who were, who were really uh, Entering in a country where many blood were um, passed a few months ago, and for, for some Tutsi 
who passed many years in outside of Rwanda, they were somehow happy to be at home. And they were curious, some who were in Congo, but others who were in Rwanda. So they were a kind of, at that time, many identities. I remember while working, we were, oh, you, you, where are you coming from? I am coming from Burundi. Where are you coming from? I am coming from uh, Uganda. Where are you coming from? I am coming from Tanzania. So we described ourselves as coming from, and others said, oh, we, we were in Rwanda. When you said you were in Rwanda, okay, are you survivors or you are not? So we had many, many identities, even if we were all Rwandese. But the community of survivors are really, um, were, were, were very, very down. So the, the reconstruction uh, took um, many steps, and it is, it is not easy. The government was trying to just uh, to be stable, and individual people were trying to go through uh, a trauma and uh, needs needs of life. But it is uh, it was another kind of life. Can I, can I yeah. go a little further? Yeah. Uh, the government eventually um, <coughs> developed these, uh, and I mispronounced it, I'm sure, the gotcha courts? Gotcha the courses, the cor Those courts. Um, uh, how do you, do you think they work reasonably well? Oh, <laughs> that is a huge question for me. <laughs> I refused to go through gotcha. <laughs> I think, uh, politically, it is uh, not easy for me to to, to, yeah, to criticize the, the, uh, the church, but personally, uh, I, I, I can. Uh, politically, the government were, uh, was facing a huge difficulty. Many, many curious in the prisons, and they had to to, to find something to yeah. They have to manage to, to manage all those prisons. They did, they do have to find the solution. Mm. So they bring up that uh, traditional justice, which was not really um, for cases like genocide case, and what. The, the way it is going on, I don't know really if it is helpful for survivors or even for perpetrators. Even if I don't mind perpetrators, but I, I, I'm not sure if uh, it is helpful too. Um, it is like we are here, like this evening. And probably Taylor uh, killed my father. And he has to go up and address it to me how he did it. 
all I have to say how I saw him killing my my parents. Uh, he can say, no, I, I do never know your parents, you are lying. In front of an assembly, who came for that? So for survivors, when uh, many went there, it is for getting some information about how uh, the family members were killed. Because many people know that uh, their mem mem family members died, but they don't know where. They don't know where the body uh, were put during the genocide. So when they go in the Kurga Chacha, they, they can have some information. But at the same time, emotionally things from genocide come out and it is not uh, it is not easy the other danger uh, for now uh, we have almost uh, uh, 200 uh, survivors who were killed because of testifying into gachacha courts uh, as you know for killers survivors are reminding that they killed. There's, you meet him, you know that he's a killer. And for, for him, it is not easy to accept that you are there to testify that he killed. So there are many problems with Gachach, but particularly, I think the, uh, the government didn't find another way to, to overcome the problem. My question is related to the, the last question. It seems to me that um, with the Holocaust, after it happened, it was um, for quite a few years, it was very clear who the bad guys were and who the good guys were and who the victims were and who the perpetrators were. And that recently, uh, maybe um, after a uh, 50 years, it starts to break down a little. You start seeing movies like The Reader, which make the uh, perpetrator look somewhat sympathetic, and then you see um, an attempt um, with some of the, um, to, to sometimes make the Jews look like they, they um, are guilty of equal sorts of crimes against Palestinians, and perhaps implying, therefore, that, um, that all people are basically the same, and there's a loss of moral clarity as you get further away with the Holocaust. And it, it also seems that social scientists push in the same direction, that they kind of, that anybody under those circumstances could do the same sort of thing, and that there's a breakdown of, of clear assignment of, of guilt and responsibility. Now, it seems to me that in Rwanda, it's, it's happening much, much, it happens much quicker, and it's much more difficult, partly because um, there were, first of all, there were a lot of moderate Hutus who were killed, so the killing was not only against Tutsis, and so it's not clear that it was, that as Hutus, as bad guys, and, and Tutsis as good guys, there were plenty of, of Hutus who were also killed, but another thing is that the Tutsis are in a, a, a real small minority, and they have to get along with the, um, with the perpetrators. And so any real truth-telling or any real assignment of moral responsibility is going to be something that's going to get in the way of future relations. So I was just wondering if you could comment on whether you think there's, um, there are forces that are, are kind of 
working against the assignment of moral responsibility in the, um, in the Rwanda genocide? Mm -hmm. uh, that is a good question. Uh, I think first, um, there are many misinformation and American, Americans, say, American? Yeah, American. Uh, I think uh, in Rwanda and uh, also for what is happening in the Middle East, uh, they are using the term genocide where it, it doesn't, where there is not necessary. Each conflict is became a genocide. Right. And I don't know why people uh, need to call a genocide where it, it, it is not a genocide. I think they think really they are something to gain with that, with that word, mm -hmm. they, they are really nothing. Uh, for me, if I could give uh, that part of my life to someone, <laughs> I will really give it easily. I, I, it is a, a, someone I don't like uh, to have to, in my life. But people need to be called the victims of a genocide when it, it is not true. And in Rwanda, it is what happened. Uh, I, I can't say that uh, they were not uh, Hutu who has been killed. Yes, but it was not a genocide. Neither. Uh, and in, in today's life, they want that to call it a genocide. And then they will say, okay, yes, we made a genocide, and the Tutsi made another genocide. And now it is equal. 